In this episode, I talk to Jonathan Patrick. With a marketing background and a long career of financing startups, he shares some great marketing lessons from working with those new businesses. Welcome to episode 124 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business, and for discussing topics on all things finance. And now, here's your host, Roger Edwards. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Thanks for downloading or streaming the show. Easter weekend is almost upon us, and I hope you have time to relax for a few days. If that means catching up on a few episodes of the podcast, then I doubly appreciate the time you spend plugging me and my guests into your earphones. I've been thinking a lot about marketing strategy recently and how complex it can get, and I recently spoke to audiences in Newcastle and Teesside about putting together simple marketing strategies and simple marketing plans. In fact, sometimes I think the S word gets in the way and it scares people off. Getting out and talking to people, including some of the fabulous guests on this show, has really helped me clarify my thoughts on this. If you need help putting together a marketing strategy, please do get in touch. So let's get into this week's interview with Jonathan Patrick. We talk about how focusing on the theoretical rather than the practical can weaken a marketing approach, conducting research without leading the customer, putting together a strategy before jumping straight into the tactics, the release early and often mentality and the importance of refining your offer, and how pitch decks win financial backing and can help keep marketing simple. Jonathan is a former financial advisor and C-level finance executive turned strategic consultant with more than 20 years of experience and proven results. He's the former startup founder of GoGrabLunch.com and FeasibleFunding.com. Jonathan is also a former professional mixed martial artist and undefeated in his weight class. So let's get right into that interview with Jonathan here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. So, Jonathan, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Roger, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Jonathan, tell me, where are we Skyping each other from? I'm in Edinburgh, Scotland, and you're in the United States, but tell me whereabouts in the United States. I sure am. Thank you. So, I like to go, I've started to call it the Lower Highlands, <laughs> <laughs> just from hanging out with from all of uh, my CMA friends in the UK. Uh, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, so uh, eastern U.S., and uh, Knoxville's on the eastern side of the state of Tennessee, a beautiful place to live. My parents grew up about an hour from here, and uh, I, I keep telling all of my U.K. friends again that I think you'd love it here if you haven't been, just because it's uh, my understanding is it's very much like Scotland with a lot of nice rolling hills and mountains. And lots of rain, presumably. Yes, it can get a bit dreary. Uh, it's uh, it likes to the city doesn't uh, make up its mind on the weather because we're in a bit of a valley surrounded by mountains. So you'll get seventy, which is what I came home to recently uh, after a business trip, uh, and then two days later it was twenty seven degrees. So it can it can vary quite a bit. It's great to have you on the show, Jonathan. And the reason that we 
thought we'd hook up is that because we've both got similar backgrounds, we've both worked in the financial services industry. I think you've worked in banking. I've worked in um, insurance and, uh, and, and investments and that sort of thing. But we also have a very solid background in marketing as well. And I thought it would be mm-hmm. really interesting to, to just to dig deeper to find out whether there are some differences in your experiences of being a marketer in the US financial services industry, and maybe there's anything that we can learn from each other and the listeners of the podcast can learn from our relevant experience in, in the different countries. But maybe before we get into that, Jonathan, tell everybody on the podcast a little bit about yourself. What makes you tick, Jonathan? Yeah, so sure. Uh, what makes me tick really is my family. I mentioned to you before we got started, my daughter's on spring break, and so she's just down the hall in her room. But um, on the business level, what makes me tick is really helping people accomplish their dreams. Uh, I would say that you and I are definitely both in a minority of people who have both finance and marketing experience. doesn't seem like it goes together all that often. I, I started out my career um, working in insurance, actually, and uh, selling insurance over the telephone through a company called Travelers and uh, worked, worked through that. Really enjoyed it. Um, moved to Japan and then moved back and looked at getting all kinds of different licenses. Thought I was going to be a financial advisor um, and uh, ended up in the banking industry. I had a friend who was uh, pursuing financial advisory licenses with me. And he ended up leaving and going to work for a bank. And he called me and he said, with your sales background and your finance background and, and those type of things, you, you'd probably be great in the banking industry. And I was not content where I was at the time. And so I thought, well, let's check this out. Let's see what this is all about. It seems like a pretty secure industry. It's been around for a really long time. And lo and behold, you never know where things are going to take you. So I started out with that company as a teller and then I became a head teller and an assistant branch manager and then a branch manager. And uh, then I moved over into the business lending side of things. So I started working with small business owners and then I worked with even larger business owners on what the U.S. would call commercial lending. Mm-hmm. And I spent about 15 years in the banking industry, most of that time doing lending to business owners the, the last five years that I did that, I was uh, lucky enough to be involved in about half a billion dollars in transactions. So a lot of a lot of loans and, and a lot of equity deals as well. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, and then I spent five years as a chief lending officer at a financial institution. So um, lots of uh, lots of banking background. I alluded to the equity world. Uh, what happened was uh, spent a lot of time getting to know people in my community and doing lots of networking. And so I would get calls from startups and newer businesses that would say, hey, I need to figure out how to get some capital, whether it's uh, equity or debt. And I got tired of the banks I was working at saying, well, they're too new. We won't help them. They have less than two years of history. We, we just There's no financials to look at because lenders are based on what you have done, historical yes. data. And I got so tired of not being able to help them that I wanted to learn about the venture capital angel investor world. So I spent years learning about it, being involved and connecting with those folks, learning how they do things. Well, Roger, that led me into starting my own startups. So I, being around those folks, I learned that uh, there are when there are pain points in life, if you can figure out a way to solve them, they lead to business opportunities. So my very first startup was a business-to-business networking site that launched in 2010. A lot of people called it business dating. We connected like-minded professionals over coffee or lunch that had never met before. Uh, the software would go so far as to allow only women to connect with women if that's what kept them safe or feeling safe. And so that, that venture actually finished with members in 45 different countries. 
So I share that story because around the world, people understand the power of networking and uh, in connecting with folks. So yeah, just wide ranging experiences. I've also um, have a marketing degree and led marketing for a $230 million organization. Um, something I graduating with the degree, actually, it took 10 or 15 years to come back to. So it, it has been a wide-ranging bit of experience along the way. That's really fascinating, Jonathan. And of course, we have got similar backgrounds, but it is interesting that you say there that you've done a marketing degree. I guess my marketing degree is from the uh, the University of uh, Hard Knocks, actually getting out there and, and learning it all in a corporate environment. I don't have a marketing degree, although I've spent more or less my entire career doing marketing roles. It, it must be quite fascinating because the academic people that I talk to about marketing certainly seem to still follow the old traditional um, template of marketing mix. So work out what your customer, what your customer's problem is, develop a solution to that customer's problem or service and then find a way to distribute that product or service and promote it. Where, of, co- where of course, the world that we live in now, a lot of people just think marketing is all about the promotional, not even the promotional element, just the content or the social media. So how, how, how have you felt marketing's developed since you did it in an academic environment to where we are now practicing it in a incredibly volatile world where things are changing pretty much every day? Absolutely. Well, I think that you, you hit on it there. That's the key is that things are evolving so quickly. You're, you're spot on. The academic way of teaching things in the United States, and keep in mind I was in college in the mid-90s, uh, was design, build, sell, right? In that order. And as I've gone on and, and, and networked with other people in marketing over the years and followed lots of online marketers and mentors and people like Mark Schaefer that we both know, people like that, we sort of flipped that on the end and said, well, sell, then design and build, mm-hmm. right? And we can talk more about that. But the academic sense of marketing is dramatically different. It was um, my, my original focus within marketing itself, taking it de- a little bit deeper, was in market research. And, and, and I believe in the idea of validating an idea and researching an idea. But I also believe in it only to an extent. What they trained us to do was do market research until infinity. Right? We just kept researching and researching and researching and researching. So I would say that uh, although I have the academic background of marketing uh, and then since then have sort of learned on the job per se or through networking and watching other people that are better at it do it, I'd rather have your background having learned it all from doing because, you know, I I don't want to get too much on my soapbox, but in the United States, we're very focused these days for students on going and getting their MBA. And while I see value there, what I think really happens is, is they all study theory. And then they come out with theory in their head and there's no actual practice. So that's not to, to bash the idea of advanced education. I believe in it, but it's just to tie in and say marketing is very much the same way. You can study it all you want, but till you go out and are actually trying to sell that product to a customer, everything changes. I think that's that's quite a good insight, um, Jonathan, because actually recently I've been doing a lot of thinking about this and recently just published an article on my blog about this whole, what I call the intellectualization of marketing. Even within companies that are relatively small, you can get to the stage where you start to overthink things and, you know, people start going off and digging out all the intellectual models like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Ansoff's matrix and Boston grids and all of that sort of thing. And yes, they have a place and that they are a useful way of measuring certain dynamics, but ultimately you've got to get yourself out 
on the street talking to the people who are going to be your customers and finding out what their problems are and if you can help them with their problems by giving them a product or a service solution. And I think that if you intellectualize things too much, you end up with a theoretical answer as opposed to a practical answer. And the practical answer, the only way to get the practical answer is to talk to real people. And maybe Mm -hmm. the, the academic environment in our colleges, and this is the same in the UK, focuses too much on the theoretical and even within the bigger core they focus on the theoretical miss maybe they miss the golden nuggets that they could get actually talking to somebody absolutely well i think that points to the the state of customer service in the world in the first place is that we sort of avoid that human interaction but it but it matters in marketing at the end of the day you don't have anything to market if you don't have customers. And the only way to really know what, what they want and what they need is to ask them. You know, there's there's these opposing theories, you know, sort of the Steve Jobs thought that say, you know, your customers don't really know what they want. You have to tell them. I'm not sure I entirely believe in that. Most things in life, in my opinion, are sort of the truth is always in the middle, right? So customers don't always know what they want until you show them a great solution. But they also have a general idea of the pain point that they're experiencing and what possibly could solve that for them. And so, yeah, lots of marketing is just, you know, developing these theories and, and, and ideas and research and continuing on with those thought processes. And I think at some point you have to, a great leader within that realm has to say, okay, we're, we're done. This is as much research as we're going to do. It's now time to go out and actually, instead of just desktop research, we're going to go out and talk to customers. I have a great mentor who, is, who taught me this whole idea of going to a point with your desktop research. And beyond that, you need to be on the phone or face-to-face with people saying, you know, I'm working on this. Tell me how this may solve, solve an issue for you. The struggle with that, Roger, is that when you're asking your customers, you have have to be careful not to lead them to the answer that you want. You have to be good at how you ask your questions so that you leave it open for them to tell you what they want, not just try and confirm what you want them to say. And there is one of the problems, I think, particularly within the financial services industry. And I hold my hands up. I've been there. You know, you almost ask the questions in a certain way so you get the answer that you want. And then you can say, hey, we did the research and guess what? That's exactly what our customers want. I think that actually, again, within financial services, you see it that it because the sometimes the product development process can be so long, especially if you're a, a company that's been around for many, many years and has lots of systems piled upon legacy systems, piled upon legacy systems. If it's taking you 18 months to, to develop something, then you almost have that mindset that we've got to research this to the nth degree to get it right, because we can't almost test it in a live environment. But the problem is, is by the time you've spent that nine months developing it, if you didn't get it right, by the time you've launched it, the world will most certainly have moved on, probably within a couple of months, not 18. So if you, if you can, I think, research it to a point, like you've said, but then the visionary leader, the marketing director, the MD, the CEO has to say, as you said, right, this is it. We're going out there and we're going to listen to what people say about the first version of the product. And then we will refine it as time goes by will make changes almost like in a live environment and i mean that's 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 the that's world we live in now isn't it it's get it out there test it refine it and and get it out there again which is a place that startups tend to do very well now Mm. i'm not implying that startups do marketing well all the time again before we got started we were talking about some of the things that they don't do well but this is where having a little bit of a startup experience i think has paid some dividends in the past is being able to balance those two worlds of of academia and corporate but then then at some point in the startup world in the u.s we often say release often and early 
right? So it doesn't have to be perfect. I think to some extent, I'm not implying people just, you know, pull the trigger immediately, but I think to some extent people's marketing needs to be that way. It, it goes back to this whole idea of lots of, I like the idea of split testing, trying different uh, avenues of doing things and seeing, monitoring your statistics and seeing which performs the best and then making little tweaks along the way. So that is one of the things that startups do world, that the corporate world and Roger and finance, we're now seeing all these corporate companies going in, partnering with fintech startups. Yeah. And, and this is one of the reasons they're doing it is to get the talent that understands how to iterate quickly and make changes quickly. The key is, is can the corporate that sort of acquires them or partners with them stay out of the way long enough to allow them to do that. So the startup world is doing this pretty well. It's, it's a lesson that the corporate world from a marketing standpoint could stand to learn a lot from is to iterate quickly make changes quickly. And sometimes we use the word pivots and I had a previous guest uh, tell me, you know, pivot isn't necessarily all the right, always the right phrase, but sometimes it's just about making those slight changes along the way and, and doing them quickly, as you say, specifically in the finance world, because yes, with all the fintech, uh, creating different great ideas in three months, you're, you're behind. I think we should probably focus in a little bit more on this concept of the startup then, Jonathan, because mm. it interests me a lot. And, and again, I've been thinking a, very, a lot recently about this because I've worked for startups and I've worked for big corporates as well. And I almost see that there's a, there's a, there's a line from startup to big corporate and when you when you are a startup, as you say, you can be nimble, you can be creative, you can do things quickly. And then as you become successful, you then start to exhibit some of the um, traits of the bigger companies. You know, you start to slow down, you lose your creativity, you may become siloed, you then start to use complex language and you start complex systems. Before you know it, you've lost all of those great things that made you such a (laughs) fabulous startup. And hey, everybody's criticizing you for being the big sluggish corporate. So... You have spent a lot of your career advising startups, helping startups, and helping them find finance. What are the things that startups do well, first of all, and what are the things that startups don't do so well? And then we'll see how we go from there. Sure. Yeah. No, it's definitely, a, 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 they, as we said earlier, they pivot quickly. They iterate quickly. They're willing to release quickly. But in and of that, in its own accord, that is also one of their faults because what you do often get is because they're iterating so quickly and releasing so quickly, sometimes the devil is in the details and they're missing some of those key details. And that is where the corporate world seems to be very good. The reason that's the case that I see with the startups that I work with is they don't have any defined processes or procedures in place. So I'd like to give a quick example of that. And it and it's in the very early stages of a startup, mm-hmm. this idea of a business plan. So in the United States, uh, we always talk about business plans, right? So go go write your business plan. But for the startup world, it's not actually what we advise you do. Uh, startup plans here are doctoral thesis sized documents <laughs> that talk about any and everything that a business needs to focus on. What that really is, is an operating model for the business. An investor, a lender, none of those folks are going to read that entire document. They're going to flip to the projections, see if you're make, say you're going to make money, flip to your marketing, see if that makes any sense and isn't just about social media. But what we really think you should do is focus on this idea of a pitch deck, you know, just a small PowerPoint presentation that talks about the key things within your business model. And the reason I think this matters is because talking about the devils in the details, doing a pitch deck allows a startup to focus on the details, particularly within their marketing plan, who their target customer 
they believe is, but also because it's able, it's a living document and not 50 pages long, it's able to, to be changed quickly to move in the direction that they're going. So, you know, startups, I think corporate world does process and procedures a little bit better, but startups have the ability to iterate more quickly and change those documents because of how they design them in the first place from the very start of the business. Since I left big corporate, I've been working with smaller companies, and I certainly do see that there is much, um, they're much more nimble, they're much more creative. At the risk, at the risk of introducing the word strategy into this um, episode of the podcast, I know that it's a, it's a word that tends to have a lot of people diving for cover. Um, they, they you know, mention the word strategy and a lot of people's eyes glaze over. Mention the word strategy and Absolutely. some people think it's tactics. Mention the word strategy and some people, like you've alluded to, think about 100-page documents, 200-page doorstop documents. Um, to, to, my, to my mind, in the world that we live in now, the smaller company, if they are making a mistake, is that they tend to dive straight into the tactics of marketing. So mm-hmm. how can we use social media? How can we use content? How can we use uh, advertising? And they haven't actually defined who their target customer is, maybe even what their goal is. We want to make $20 million a year and this is the segment of customer and this is the problem this segment of customer has and this is the product or the service that will solve that problem. It's all about let's get out there and start tweeting or let's get out there and start blogging or let's get out there and start um, doing video. Do you, do, you, do you find that that's the same sort of um, experience that you've had with uh, it's, startups? It's spot on. And mm. Roger, what that comes back to is they're not talking to their customers. Mm. So bringing this full circle, right? They're, they're just not talking to their customer. They have, and, and I'll say, I've, I've done this myself as a startup founder, so I'll use the story to sort of to, to bridge it. Um, my second startup I ever did was a software solution, mm-hmm. and it was targeting people who were doing exactly what I, what I did. It was solving my own pain point. And so I knew that this was a pain point for all these other people in the same position as me. I just knew it. What I didn't know, because I didn't spend enough time talking to the customers and validating the idea, was that was there? I didn't pay attention. There was an even larger pain point that this could have solved. So I got I got so razor focused on. I'm sure this is a pain point. I know it is that I didn't talk to enough people. I sort of drank my own Kool Aid to understand that there was an even bigger problem to solve. What this all comes back to for startups on their marketing is not enough validation. Again, not implying that they spend all their time validating, but they're not spending enough time talking to the customer to understand the pain point they have. Is it a large enough addressable pain point that they can market to? You know, some startups need thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers to be profitable. Some need 10. <laughs> so yes. you have to look at market size. So so what we're saying here is there are some academic approaches that get focused on in university and things like that that make sense, right? This idea of market size and those things. But then also just just validating, talking to your customer, understanding what they want out of something and then i think what happens is you're right they get into the tactics of this is how i'm going to do it not who i'm going to address with my marketing not what pain point i'm going to address with my marketing you talked about strategy some people just have that skill set of being able to think at a very high level and some don't necessarily and so what i see with a lot of startups i work up work with is they really need to have a team around them that has people with different skill sets that can do different things the marketer might be really good at the action steps and the tactics to go out after that target market, but oftentimes it takes the founder or the CEO or even a great mentor who's not in the startup 
who says, you know, this is our why, this is our vision, and this is this is what those people feel. With target customers, I always say you should know what color her eyes are, what color her hair is, and you should know her down to the T. What they do usually is panic about that because they think, well, gosh, you're going to niche me down so far that there's not enough customers. Mm. Well, that all comes back because they didn't do any research to understand their market size in the first place. So they do. They make they make these. And, and Roger, a lot of that jumping to market that we're talking about happens because they're just so excited, yes. right? I mean, in the end, what you and I are really talking about with companies and business is people's dreams. And this is something that people have sat around and they've thought about for however long, and it's their dream. It's what they, it's their passion. It's what they want to do. Now, side note, it may not be their passion after they've done it for 14 months and 14 <laughs> hours a day, but this is people's dreams we're talking about. So they get in a hurry to jump to market. They, they want to get running and get going. And some of it is also because society's done a bad job of talking about startups in the way of scalability, right? You have to scale, you have to scale, you have to scale. And that's why they get in a hurry. So I, I think, again, a good leader knows developing the plan enough and then pulling the trigger and getting running. And there's this happy middle ground in those areas. And, and the biggest place every business I've ever worked with makes a mistake is with their marketing. They either don't define it well enough or they don't commit enough of a budget to yes. it in the first place. That corresponds exactly to the um, to what I see in the United Kingdom, to what I see with the companies that I've been working with. I, I, I'm a simple marketer, Jonathan. I always like to keep things simple. It used to drive me insane when I used to work for big corporate and everything was process-driven and you, know, you, go, you had to jump through 15 hoops before you could even go and get a coffee out of the machine. Um, I do like to keep things simple. And, you know, overall marketing plan doesn't need to be 100 pages long. It doesn't need to be 200 pages long. I have it in my head that if you can define your target customer and and let's not let's not be so complete. You no, know, never ever use term millennials or we're going after baby boomers. You know, you need to be really specific on who they are. And as you say, it could be ten people, or it could be ten thousand, or it could be a million. But it's never the whole world. What is their problem, and how can you fix their problem better than anybody else? So that's your that's your proposition, I guess, if you want to use a jargonistic term. And then once you've got that proposition, pretty much everything else can flow from that. You can work out what your mission, if you have, if you want to have a mission statement, that is. You can work out what that mission statement is. You can work out what your financial goals could be, assuming that the solution that you want to offer could, can lead to a profitable financial solution. And once you've got those foundations in place, then you can start talking about the promotion and the product and the content and the social media and the tactics. Mm-hmm. And, 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 mm-hmm. and to my mind, it doesn't need to be complicated. And perhaps other than the excitement that these people feel that they want to get out there, they want to fulfill their lives, dreams, like you say, maybe they're frightened by what they what they think is a really complicated process. And it, and it doesn't actually need to be. It's just a few steps documented that will give you the foundation you need to be successful when you start to get out there and talk to people. Yeah, I think simplicity is key because it lets you focus on a few, if not one priority. So I'm a voracious reader. My favorite book of all time is Essentialism by Greg McEwen. If you've read it, he talks about there's no such thing as multiple priorities. The word priority (laughs) means the next prior thing. And so it's this idea of focusing on this one thing. Well, for marketing for businesses, what's the one pain point that you solve better than anybody else out there that that you can beat everybody at it 
you know, the other mistakes I see for these companies is, is they just like to talk in, in, in generic terms because it's easy. So have you heard this one before? Well, I only need 1% of market share. I mean, it's just too easy to say, right? It's, 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 so we pick all the easy phrases, the easy ways to go about it. Roger, we, we talked about this too. We, the easy way for marketing for a lot of companies is I'm going to go on social media and I'm going to go viral. <laughs> And then everybody's going to buy my product, right? And the next, you know, Dollar Shave Club with really fancy video. And so everybody's going to jump in and do it. And so instead of focusing on what that one thing is that you do ever better than everybody else, they just go out and say, we're going to go get followers and we're going to go, you know, this is the number of times we're going to post for a day. And the reason they're doing this and they're saying this, at least to me, is because it doesn't cost a lot. Mm-hmm. So now we're back to this whole idea of they're not putting enough money in a marketing budget in the first place. I mean, what if? What if your target market just happens to hang out regularly in their car driving down the interstate? Well, if that's the case, then, then a billboard actually makes really good sense for you. And that's an old school marketing tactic, tactic, right? So that's another thing I try and bring them back to. And, and hopefully a takeaway for your audience is where does your target market hang out in the first place, right? So w- where do they spend their time? Where do they consume information? Where do they, where do they go? And that does come back to the idea of content marketing, and I'm totally behind that. And by the way, I'm totally behind social media. I mentioned my first startup. Um, we were in 45 countries, and guess how we did most of our marketing? It was through social media. So I'm not implying it doesn't work, but that can't be all you do. You need to think about your overall marketing plan, as you say, and where does your customer hang out, and then how do you solve that pain point, that one pain point better than anybody else. That's fantastic advice. And, you know, I've got this great big red button here on my desk with the words go viral printed on the top of the button. And, you know, if I hammer my (laughs) fist onto that button, it very rarely works. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. (laughs) That's strange. Surprising, isn't it? It's surprising. You know, I think, again, that, that focus on the simplicity, this is what we do better than anybody else. You know, that, that can give you a, that huge advantage that trying to be all things to all men. You know, so many companies make that mistake. We want to target the whole world and we want to give the whole world lots of things. And they fail because they haven't pinpointed exactly what it is that they do amazingly well. Yeah. Is it Karen from CMA that uh, that focuses on helping uh, accountants specifically, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So let's so think about that for a minute. Now, she's saying that all she works with is accountants and someone might say, well, that means you're going to turn away somebody else. Yes, because she's really good with accountants. She knows how to serve them better than anybody else out there. And so look at the dividends that that pays for her business. It also allows her to be very, very simple in her approach. She knows what approach, what marketing works with those accountants and, and how to, where they hang out, how to hit, how to hit them with the information they need to hear in order to make a buying decision with her. So I, it's, it's, it's classic blunders, blunders that all start all businesses make, including startups. They just go too broad with everything. They're afraid to niche down because they're going to miss out on a revenue opportunity. But in the end, they just end up competing with too many people and they don't stand out at all. So we've got a startup, Jonathan. You've arranged finance for them. They launch. They're successful. And, and this comes to what I was saying earlier. So you've got a startup that's nimble. It's kept it simple they've come up with a product they've come up with a with a real focus on one thing that they're really good at and they launch and they become successful despite not having the big red viral button they launch and they get the marketing right and then they start to be successful then what we start to see is that they expand 
They recruit people who perhaps mm. weren't part of the original startup. And those people that come in might have slightly different philosophies. And it's possible that eventually that original focus mentality starts to get diluted and they become even more. So how, how do we how do we retain that discipline to have that simplicity, the creativity, the pinpoint focus that we had when we were a startup? How do we keep that however big we get? Is that even possible? Yeah, to steal, I, I think it is. Companies have have done it. Companies like Zappos in the United States, um, online shoe uh, retailer have obviously done it. They, they've done it through some unique ways of they don't even use uh, titles anymore. There's no organizational structure that they follow. I'm not sure that necessarily works for every company. But so my point is, is it's possible. They're, they're highly successful and, and they have eliminated a lot of that. Uh, if you've read Tony Shea's book talking about the founding of Zappos and working through that, what he ended up doing was he noticed that the company, just what you said, Roger, was growing so quickly that he didn't know the people anymore. Mm. And he realized this isn't good. This, this, is, this just isn't good. My, with, without stealing too much from the, the brilliant Simon Sinek, but I think it all comes back to why you exist in the first place. I see this with companies and startups alike. They go out and there's there's a fight for talent, and they just go out and hire anyone they get with a good resume. When I hire, uh, I don't hire for resume. You, you need to be good at what you do, but I hire for all of what I call the intangibles, the things like drive and vision and things like that that I can't teach you, that, that a resume doesn't show um, when I ran marketing for the organization I alluded to, I hired a young lady to work for me that had, had done marketing before. She had an MBA, very bright, but she'd never done marketing for a financial institution. And so I got pushback from other people at the company and said, well, why, why are you looking to hire her? And I said, because I see in her the drive, the vision, willingness to learn, willingness to be mentored, all these things that the other candidates just didn't have. And uh, she ended up being the best hire I think I've ever made. So the way, the way you avoid these is, is when you're hiring people, um, cliche thing. It's like you hire slow and you fire fast and you you make sure that they're coming there for the reason that you exist. So back to your point of simplicity, your business should have that simplicity and that one priority that we talked about. And do those new hires understand what that is? Because it'll drive everything else that they do. There probably comes a point when a company gets so big that it's going to be nearly impossible to keep people out that don't fit that mold. I think it just goes back to aggressively letting them know they don't belong there and finding somebody else who does. That's so insightful. And, you know, you, you've you reminded me of, I, I mentioned the um, startup company that I worked for a long time ago called Bright Gray. And we, mm -hmm. we, had an, we had this mantra. When we recruited people, it was recruit for attitude and then train for skill. So we were looking for the people who had the spark, had the innovation, had the creativity, had the drive. And if and if they weren't financial services um, experts, they could be trained in that. But what you what we Absolutely. really wanted, we really wanted that drive. And then the other thing that has just remembered, I think when we launched Bright Grey originally, there were six of us, and then we grew. And I think that um, when we actually launched the business, there was about thirty five people. And of course, I knew everybody's name because we'd lived and breathed it for 12 months, building it from um, six mobile phones and one office. And I can remember one day, and may, I don't know, maybe by then we'd, we'd expanded to being 50 people. And I remember walking down the corridor and walking past somebody and saying hello to them. And I thought, I don't know your name. And, <laughs> and that was a moment I thought, ooh, time to have a time to stop, time to ha take a breath. Yep. And time to think, Absolutely. okay, we're starting. This is the, this could be the start of the way things start to unravel. And you need, as you say, to keep that focus. And 
it, it, it is incredibly difficult. Yeah, so you hit on it right there. I think uh, since we've been talking a little bit about startups, so it's probably a good opportunity to say, you know, if you're in startup mode and you're looking for funding, let's remember it's not just about the funding. Mm. It's about the investor that you're going to bring on, mm. what they bring to the table, and what changes they may force on you. Mm. When you bring on an investor, they expect you to grow and scale at a certain rate. And that's going to mean bringing on more employees. So maybe the startup founders need to think about this idea of how much money do we really need in which to scale? And are we interested in being the next Facebook and trying to get this massive valuation? Or are we really just trying to build a business for all of us where we don't have to go out and raise money, take on all these investors who are going to want seats on our board and all these other conditions, and then having to go out and hire too many people that you don't really need. So it's, um, I always tell people there's more to going out and getting an investor for a startup. It's always about more. I, I try to encourage them to don't even think about the money. Think about everything else they're going to bring to the table, both good and bad, right? Whether you go out, not all businesses need capital, Roger. No, they don't. But those that do, uh, whether you go the debt route or the equity route, is a very deliberate decision that you have to think about because there's lots of consequences, both good and bad, that come with it. And it's it's just something that it's something you have to do. That's that's interesting because what you don't want is if you've got a great idea, a great uh, product, and you're meeting that customer need. What you don't want is for the investor to impose conditions on you, which effectively destroy the proposition that you're asking them to back. It can very well happen. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Again, I'm not discouraging people from going and getting investors. I'm discouraging them from going and getting the wrong investor. Jonathan, this has been a fantastic conversation. We have meandered a little bit around so many marketing topics, but I've really enjoyed sure. listening to the to the US perspectives. Quite a lot of similar things, as you would expect. We've both experienced similar um, uh, simplicities and complexities. What what would be the one thing out of the experience you've had as as a as a person working in the banking industry, as a marketer, as a startup um, funder, what would be the one thing that you would like the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast to take away from the experiences that you've had over the years? From a marketing perspective, it's just completely and utterly understanding your target market and what their pain point is, and not implying your own suppositions to what that what you think that is. Talking to them, understanding it, because if you do, your life will become so much easier and. S- Producing revenue for your company will be so much easier than going out and not understanding a bit of that at all. Fantastic. And one of the things I also like to think about on the podcast is what's happening outside your immediate day-to-day job. And have mm-hmm. you have you seen, it could be a marketing campaign or it could be another product or it could be a service that's, that's caught your attention, maybe an advert, maybe a TV program or something like that that's caught your attention and made you think, wow, that really hits the spot. Tell me what it was and, and uh, what you thought about it. Yeah, it was uh, an advertisement for a, an automobile maker, and it gets me every time I see it. My wife even will say, you know, with our daughter in the room, hey, there's daddy's commercial that he likes. <laughs> and what it does so well is it is it, I am its target market. It knows me. It knows I'm a dad of a little girl who is, you know, probably anywhere between four and 10 years old, and that one day that little girl is going to be all grown up, and she's going to be getting in that car that I bought her. She's going to be driving off to go to college. And they know that that is the one thing that at this moment in time, I fear more than anything else because she's going to be leaving my house. She just turned nine the other day. And I said to her mother, she's halfway out of the house. Mm-hmm. And that marketer knew me. Now, they've never called me. They don't know my name. They don't, have, they don't know anything about me. 
but they knew people that are like me that are at the same stage of life I'm at, of the same fears that I'm, I may have. And what they did so brilliantly, Roger, was they pulled on my emotional strings, but they didn't pull too hard. They pulled just enough that it caught my attention. And actually, now when that commercial comes on, I'll look away because I'll start to tear up <laughs> thinking about it. It's just absolutely brilliant marketing. Absolutely brilliant marketing. What's just because they understood their market better than anybody else. What's the name of the company? It was, uh, it was Ford, the Ford Automaker. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And you've already mentioned quite a few business books already today, Jonathan. But if there was one business book that you've read recently uh, that you would like to recommend to the listeners of the podcast, what would it be? And what did you take from it? And what did you like about it? Absolutely. I'd like to throw out one that I'm hoping not a lot of people have heard about. Uh, If they have, that's great. But it's a a book that was given to me, gifted to me by a gentleman named uh, Chad Ridner. And uh, no Chad out in my local community. Chad runs a, a bookkeeping business that's been going quite well, but he he gave me a book called I believe it's called the Dream Manager. Right. And what the idea was, um, it's a little bit of a parable, but the idea is essentially a gentleman comes in to run HR for the company, and he it's a, a professional cleaning service, and he comes in to run uh, HR for the company, and he decides that he's going to go out and he's going to find out what all of his employees really dream of, and if that dream means that that Sue wants to be a nurse rather than cleaning homes, he's going to help her accomplish that by helping her go to nursing school and all these things because that will make her an absolutely fantastic employee. And so you say, well, then that fantastic employee is going to end up leaving and going somewhere else. But we've all seen the memes on um, LinkedIn that talk about, you know, CEOs say, what if we invest in them and they leave? And Or CFOs say, what, what if we invest in them and they leave? And CEOs say, what if we don't invest in them and they stay, right? So it's just a phenomenal story about helping people accomplish their dreams. It's sort of a, a la the lines of Jim Rohn who says, you know, if you help people get what they want, they'll help you get what you want. Just a really quick, brief read that made a big difference to me. And I turned around and ended up gifting it to someone else who said the same thing, said it was one of the best books they've read. I really like those small nugget-sized books that you can consume perhaps in an hour or two but it does leave you with a really lasting lasting impression. Jonathan, if sure. people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way that they should connect? Yeah, absolutely. Probably on Twitter or Instagram at J Mills Patrick, M-I-L-L-S-P-A-T-R-I-C-K. Um, or if you'd like to check out uh, what I'm doing to help startups in the southern United States, you can go to southbound.com. Fantastic. Jonathan, it has been a real pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. So many areas where we've had similar experiences, so many um, insights and ideas that you've come up with today. I'm really pleased that you were able to find the time to come on the podcast. I always say to people who do come on the podcast that it would be really good to meet you and have a coffee with you or a beer with you at some point. But given the fact that you're about 6,000 miles away, it's probably less likely than if you were in the United Kingdom. But the offer is still there, Jonathan. Perhaps at next year's CMA. How's that? (laughs) Let's try and make that a date. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF for links to the topics, apps and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. If you are a business person, financial services professional or journalist and have a marketing or finance story to tell, please get in touch. You could be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's just thoughts and opinions, okay? 